Good morning. We turned the air up just a bit, so which should be warm, all right. The air condition goes up, it gets warmer. It's it says it's seventy two. It feels like a freezer locker to me in here this morning. We will see. Okay. Does everybody have a copy of the handout? If not, we can get one to you. Okay. Let's have a word of prayer together and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, we come this morning uh, to worship. That's, that's our number one priority, Lord. And we need to worship. We need to express our faith and our trust in you. That's part of worship. And Lord, as we're going to see this morning, Hannah's ability to trust was based on her knowledge and understanding of you, who you were, your promises and uh, your care for your people. So Lord, it all it all rolls together. Knowledge of the word is is vital to faith. Knowledge of, of the word of seeing you work in the lives of people all through the centuries is, is essential to our being able to live a life of faith today. So God, as we look at the lives of your people back in the time of Samuel. God, we just ask that you would help us to relate these truths to our lives today. And more than just a, an intellectual understanding and an and, and insight, God, that it would be a power that would take hold of our hearts and that it would change us. And it would enable us to stand strong and to live boldly for you so that you would be glorified, that you would be honored. So we commit this time to you, acknowledging our need for your spirit to come. God, let the word of God, let the spirit of God take the word of God, transform the child of God into the image of God for the glory of God. And we'll give you the praise for it now in Jesus' name. Okay, First Samuel, maybe we'll actually get into the book this morning, huh? Last time, before the blackout, we, um, uh, we had a, let's spend a week on the introduction and just really kind of understanding the times in which Samuel and then, of course, David and, and um, Saul lived. It's really important to, to understand the times in order to be able to understand this book, to be able to understand, Ruth, why would a mother who had been deprived of a child for so many years and wanted one so bad, why would she be so willing to give that child up to be raised by a man who had proved himself to be an ungodly man. 
Have you ever thought about it like that? What would make a woman want to do something like that? Well, we're going to find out. Either this week or next. I'm not sure just how it falls. But we're going to find out. And it's, it's been an eye-opener for me. Uh, of course, that's nothing new. I, I, um, one of the mo- most amazing things in my life is my own ignorance, you know? I, I shock myself sometimes, surprise myself how ignorant I am. The time that Samuel lived in, do a really quick review of what we did last time, was a time of, of utter turmoil. Okay, the whole nation was in turmoil. It was a time when Scripture says the judges ruled. And you remember, God was raised, people were rebelling, God would raise up judges to rule over his people. Now, these were not the guys with the black robes and the gavels like we think about today. Some of them were warriors. Some of them were, were judges as such. Uh, we had one woman who was a judge. Um, but these were people from different walks of life, different uh, abilities that God raised up to rule over his people and to draw them back. And you remember there was the cycle. You know, the people would rebel and God would, would bring judgment. God would, would uh, bring precious chastisement on them to get their attention, to draw them back. They'd repent. God would forgive them. They'd return to God. What would they do then? Live happily ever after? No, they would rebel. You know, aren't you glad we are past all of that? You know, aren't you glad we learn our lesson and then for the rest of our lives it's smooth sailing? It was a time when the word of God was rare. It was The word of God was rare because of the, the rebellion of the people. The word of God was rare because the priesthood, the people that God had raised up to represent himself to his people were, were moral decadence. Is that the word I want? I mean, they were, they were the lowest of the low. These are the people that, that were supposed to offer God the sacrifices of, of, of holiness and praise and, and worship. And, and as a result of that, the word, and it's not the word of God, like everything that had been written prior to that time was not available, but the word from God was rare. There was no leading of God. There was no uh, direction of God in the lives of his people. Okay, It was a time of, of crisis. It was a time of crisis in the nation politically. You remember the, one of the key verses out of Judges, it says that there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay, You can imagine where that led to. But in that in that horrible, horrible setting, we are going to see God at work. We, we, you know, God, from the day God created man until the day that He comes back and and renews the earth, God will be working among His people. He will be drawing His people back to Himself, and of course, He's doing that now. Um, there were days of we're going to see days of grace. First Samuel seven. Um, three, just an example. It says, Then Samuel spoke to all of the hosts of Israel, saying, 
if you return to the Lord with all of your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord, and serve him alone, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Now, here he's talking about the Philistines, their enemies. But he, God is always calling his people to return, to turn their hearts back to him, to trust him. And so, even during this dark time, God was, was uh, through his grace, was calling his people back to himself. Uh, it was a time of, of transformation when we saw, and we'll see, uh, God's, the rule of kings changing. We will see God working through kings, through the priesthood, to get rid of Eli and to, to reestablish it. He was working through, um, through Samuel. He's going to bring um, uh, David to the throne as part of his covenant promise to his people. A lot of stuff going on. Stuff's not a good word. A lot of good things going on in the book of 1 Samuel. They're going to be really exciting. I think what we've decided to do, I just, <clears throat> I spent 20 years in the Southern Baptist Church doing 10 chapters a week. And I'm not going to do that. I'm, we're not going to just skim the surface and say, you know, so we're going to go in the six weeks we have, we will go as far as we can. And then next time we roll around, we'll pick back up in First Samuel and we'll, we'll move on. But we're going to spend some time and try to understand what God has for us here. So, this week we're going to be getting into 1 Samuel 1. And we're going to see that, as I mentioned, this is a time of transition in the life of the nation. Okay? The priesthood has come to ruin because of, of Eli and his sons. We're going to see God establish kingship for his people, which was his plan from from Genesis. Uh, the people demanded their own king, so he let them have what they wanted to prove to them that that, that was the wrong, the wrong move. And then we're going to see him take, take a step further to establish David as his king. But it's the first translation transition, excuse me, that we're going to see in the book of Samuel is from, from Eli, the, the priest, to God bringing Samuel on the scene. And then Samuel is going to be God's man, God's instrument that he will use to bring about the change and the stability that the nation needs. So let's look at 1 Samuel 1, 1 and 2. It says, Now there was a certain man from Ramothim, Zophim. Now that's that's as bad as it gets in in the book. I, I believe that that's going to be it's all downhill from there. So I, I slaughtered that word. So I think it's going to be better in the future. We'll see. Okay. So God brought this certain man along from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jero, Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of to Tohu, the son of Zaph, and Ephraimite. And he had two wives, and the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penana. And Penana had children, but Hannah had no children. 
There's an awful lot packed into those two verses, okay? But this gives us the, the foundation and the, the playing field, if you will, for the first chapter. The family of Elkanah. The only thing we know about Elkanah is a little bit of the genealogy that's given in verse 1, and we don't know that there's any real significance in any of those people other than the fact that they were his, his ancestors. But one of the commentators I, I was looking at pointed out that the significance in this thing is the insignificance of it. The significance of the people is the fact that they were not really significant people. You know, when we look at the scriptures, we're in our mindset in today's world, we look for heroes, superheroes, men who, you know, Samson's and all this kind of stuff. But normally, when God selects a man, God selects a woman, he starts with a person who's very insignificant, who has no ability. Does that give you any hope? Gives me hope. <laughs> you know, God can use us. You know, and you hear that, you know, and it kind of becomes trite, but it's true. God does that mainly, I think, because then God gets the glory. You see somebody who's got supernatural, you know, charisma and all that, you know. Well, some, of, some people have that. But God gets the glory when he takes a plain vessel and glorifies himself through it. This book is about God, about a God who makes something out of nothing, life out of death, rich out of poor, somebody out of nobody. God's answer comes from the most unexpected quarter. If we insist on looking to the powerful, the influential, and the impressive in this world, we will miss it. So he was from Ramah. Okay, Ramah was about 15 miles north of Shiloh. <laughs> that helps you, Amy. And Shiloh, in that neck of the woods, that part of Israel, was, was the worship center. It wasn't the worship center for the entire nation, but in that state, for lack of a better term, this was the worship center. And, of course, Eli was the, was the, the head priest there. We can't, he wasn't the high priest. But he was, he was a priest in that area. So it tells us that, and then it tells us one more fact about, about um, Elkanah, and that is that he had two wives. Now, good luck, guy. You know, you got two wives. One was Hannah, who was barren, and Penina, who had children. And that's going to be, as we're going to see, a source of real conflict. And yet, it's going to be one of the major tools that God is going to use in the life of Hannah to, to do the work that he wants to do. I tell you, if you go through this book and you don't have an exorbitant respect for Hannah, you, you've missed it. She was a godly woman who was submissive to the Lord, had some unbelievably tough situations to live with, 
and yet she responded as God wanted her to. God used her. It's a beautiful story. And we're going to see. Elkanah, from what we can tell here, was nothing short of a godly man. That Everything that we see in this chapter points to him being a man of God. Let's look at a few verses uh, that tell us some things about Elkanah. We're going to we're going to repeat verses some this morning, but we're going to read through, in this case, looking for what it tells us about Elkanah. We may go in a little bit later back to the same verses looking to see what it tells us about. I'm going to say Ruth. Y'all just wait, okay? I'm going to say Ruth. Um, Hannah. And, and so kind of bear with me as we go through this. Chapter 1, verse 3 and 5, looking now for what Scripture tells us about Elkanah. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And his two and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Benana, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. And then in verse 8, Then Elkanah said, her, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I, am I not better than ten sons? And then in verse 19, And they arose early in the morning and worshipped, and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Then the man Elkanah went up with his household to offer to the... Then the man... Elkanah went up with his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. We're never, we're never told what that vow is. But Hannah did not go, for she said to her husband, I will, go up until, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said, do what? seems best to you, remain until you have weaned him, only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now, we know from the genealogy, short genealogy in verse 1, that Elkanah was, was apparently a man of some social standing in his community. You, know, you can't press that too far. But the fact that he was he was known by the company he kept, so to speak, by his family, okay, this was part of of his makeup. We know we can can sleep. We can can get the word I want. We can understand that he was probably a man of moderate wealth, at least, because he could afford two wives. Now you fellas know one's kind of expensive sometimes. Not as expensive as a husband, but they are expensive. 
got to save myself somewhere. And also when the time came for him to offer the sacrifice, when they, when they take Samuel, he was able to offer a bull. Now commentators say those facts together would lead you to believe that they were probably a comfortable family, one of, of, of moderate wealth. Okay? You can't say for sure, but, but that's, that's apparent. We know, and this is even the most important thing, that he was a man of genuine affection and faithful piety. And he loved Hannah. He loved Hannah. But you can see his love for, for Hannah coming through. You know, he, he said, you know, am I not better to you than ten sons? You don't have a son, but am I not better? Now, I don't think he was bragging. You know, I don't think he was, you know, pointing fingers to himself. But I think he, in himself and in his relationship with his wife, he knew that he was doing the best he, that he could do. He knew he was a good husband. We see that... Um, that he was faithful year by year to go up to Shiloh. He was faithful to offer the sacrifices. He was faithful to take his family along with him. And apparently he had a pretty good-sized family. He fit in pretty good at Calvary, I guess, because he had, he had quite, a few, quite a few children. But he was attentive to his responsibilities to the Lord and to his family. Okay, he made the pilgrimage to Shiloh each year to worship and offer sacrifices. And you know, this, the, the, so often the, the little things that you can pick up in Scripture that, that really are so neat and excite you. In verse 19, they've, they've, they've been in Shiloh. Um, Hannah has talked with Eli about you know, her desire for children. And they're ready to go back home, okay? In verse 19 it says, Then they arose early in the morning, what? And they worshipped before the Lord, and returned again to the house in Ramah. Yeah. They've worshipped. They're ready to go home. They got the stuff packed. Now, I don't know about you. When we go on a trip, we pack our stuff. We throw it in the car. We stop by McDonald's to get something for breakfast. And we head out. Not Elkanah. Elkanah took his, his family to the temple. And they worshipped. Before they started on that trip, before he went back, it says that they rose early in the morning and they worshipped before the Lord and they returned again to their house in Ramah. If you remember last week we talked about Ramah and the fact that all through the scripture, all through 1 Samuel, we're going to see Samuel returning to Ramah. It's going to say Samuel went on circuit he returned to Ramah. Here, they returned to Ramah. At the end of his life, he died in Ramah. Yeah. And as I mentioned last week, and, and can't prove it by scripture, okay? But his mother gave him to the Lord, right? Where did his mother live? In Ramah. I just believe with all of my heart that and giving him to the Lord, the Lord gave him back to his family. I mean, he was there. He lived among his, his family with his, in, the, in the same city. Okay? They went back 
Everything that we see about Elkanah was the fact that he was faithful. He was a godly man. He loved his wife. He loved his children. He loved his Lord. He made worship a priority in his life. Good man. Had two wives. Chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. And we're going to deal with Penana first. It says, her rival, who is Penana, however, would provoke, provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now, we're, we're going to deal with the barrenness of Hannah in a minute and see where it tells us that the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 7, it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, Penina would provoke Hannah, so she wept and would not eat. So here's a, a contention, a household contention, that's gone on, according to the scripture, from year to year, with Penina gloating over Hannah because Hannah had no children, but Penina did. Ladies, men too, I mean, you know, how would you feel if you had to live with somebody like that? I mean, what would that elicit from you? What kind of response, you know, would, would that? I think I'd get pretty bitter, you know? I think I'd get pretty bitter over it. I want to read you just one short paragraph. This commentary, and of course, this is obviously his sanctified imagination, but of what it could have been like in that household. Okay? Now, apparently, they're sitting around a table. It says, Panana herself likely chafed under Elkanah's obvious affection for Hannah. Can you, ha can you imagine how it must have been? And this is Panana speaking says, now do you children have your food? Dare me, there are so many of you, it is hard for me to keep track. Well, she had, you know, she'd been good at Calvary. And then this little voice comes up, Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. What did you say, dear? I said, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Oh, yes, you're right. She doesn't have any children. Doesn't she want children? Oh, yes, yeah, she wants children very, very much. Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? Don't you wish you had children too? Doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids? Oh, certainly he does. But Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him. She just never has children. Why not? Why, because God won't let her? Does God not like Miss Hannah? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, by the way, Hannah, did I tell you that I'm pregnant again? Do you think you'll ever be pregnant, Hannah? Now, that's, we don't know. That's not scripture. But the scripture does say that year after year, Hannah had to live with that kind of irritating, grating, relationship right under her nose. You know, there are times when when God will withhold 
a child but from a family, but when he does, it's for his glorious will, good reason. And we're going to see that in Hannah. But this is the kind of thing, I read that to you just to help you see what kind of situation Hannah was in and how we're going to see that God used that in her life. Panana saw Hannah as her rival and provoked her bitterly. Year after year it went on, beating Hannah, irritating her, winding her up until sobs broke out, goading her to complain against the Lord. This temptation number one, okay? Goading her to complain against the Lord. Does God not want you to have children? But instead of having the desire effect, it drove Hannah to Oh, that's what we need to see. You know, we don't face that exact circumstance, maybe some of us do. But the very thing that Satan wanted to use to drive a wedge between Hannah and God turned out to be a bond. You know, it's, 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 it's a trite saying, but it's true. That's why it sticks around. That our lives are... 90, uh, 10% what happens to us and 90% how we respond to what happens to us. Yeah. So all this time, it wasn't momentary light of fiction. It went on for year after year. But let's look at Hannah. Let's look at what Hannah's situation was. Chapter 1, verse 2, we talk about the barrenness of Hannah. It says, and he had two wives, the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had no children, but, ha- but Hannah, excuse me, Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And verse 5 tells us, but Hannah would not give, but to Hannah, Elkanah, Elkanah would give to Hannah a double portion when they went for their annual um, pilgrimage, he would give her a double portion of the sacrifices. For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. So we see that that Hannah had no children, but it was because God had closed her womb. God had prevented her from having children. But all through history, God has used that same scenario, hasn't he? Over and over and over. Sarah, Rebecca, Manoah's wife, Elizabeth, Rachel. God has used barrenness, temporary barrenness in some cases, to get the attention to do a work in the life. You know, we see things in our lives that hurt us. And sometimes we get resentful against the Lord for doing them. But it's always for our good. We can't see it, but it's always for our good. You know, um, devastation. I wrote myself here on the side. It says, devastation is often a gateway. When we feel devastated because of a loss or because of something that God is withholding from us, that's often a gateway. That's God's getting our attention, our focus on him. 
Um, you know, God used uh, used this in, in our lives, in James and our life. You know, we, we went for years, we were not able to have children. And the doctor said we would never be able to have children, you know. And I can remember we were, you know, we were just, uh, we were devastated by it. We wanted children so bad. And um, in our particular case, one day God uh, just really spoke to our hearts and we were ready to, to, um, to lose faith in what he would do, you know. And he said, you know, he said, you know what I mean by that, spoke to my heart one day and he said, you know, are you, are you willing to trust me to withhold children if I need to, if I want to? Or are you willing to allow me to give you my children at the right time? Do you want an Isaac or do you want an Ishmael? Now, sometimes, God, we see God withholding a child until a family adopts because God wants that adopted child in that family. That is so precious. You know, we got one, we got friends have children. I don't know, I don't know how close they are, James, six or eight months apart or something like that. You know, they adopted. As soon as they adopted, they found out she was pregnant. She'd been waiting for years. You know, and God takes us through all those different things, all those different scenarios. He wants us to trust him. Whatever he does, however he brings it through. You know, we've got a, a, an emphasis now that's growing in the, in the body of Calvary on adoption. What a beautiful thing for a family to take in. I mean, that's just, if there's any picture of the gospel in action, it's, it's adoption, you know. When you take a child, and you make it your own. It's beautiful. But that's not how, I don't know how I got off on that. So in this family, there's, there's all of this, and, and the, the, the bitterness of Penina was to drive a wedge between Hannah and her God, but it was, it was making it all the stronger. So let's look for a moment at the faith of Hannah. How did Hannah respond to all of this? Okay. Chapter 1, verse 9 through 18. It says, Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Um, now Eli the priest was sitting on, uh, on the seat by the doorpost in the temple of the Lord. And she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor will never come on his head. Now it came about that she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. 
So Eli thought that she was drunk. Now here he is in the in the church, and his lifestyle was such that when he saw somebody like that, his first thought she's drunk. You know, that tells us something about Eli. We'll learn more about Eli next week. But then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my lord. I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of the great concern, out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli said to her, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, Let me. Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So what do we see about uh, Hannah's faith here? First off, I think we see that, that her faith demonstrated was demonstrated in her, um, in her affection for the okay, let me back up a minute. Her faith was demonstrated in in the very God who had caused her afflictions. You know, verse five told us said the Lord had had closed her her womb. You know, Hannah understood what was going on, and yet her faith was not diminished by what she saw God doing in her life on that day. She apparently could see beyond that to see that, that God was worthy of trust. He was worthy of her putting her, all of her faith in him. Okay? Even though he was the one who was causing her affliction, he was still the one to be trusted. She was not to turn aside to some other, other means of help. Okay? Her faith expressed was expressed in a commitment to the Lord. Her faith wasn't just one of, well, yeah, I guess God's going to do it if he wants to, if he doesn't. Her faith was expressed in commitment. Okay? She made a vow. She made a vow that she would give her son, if God saw fit to give him to her, she would give him back to the Lord. It was a commitment. It was something more than just something she thought in her head. She was growing to put a commitment behind it. It was expressed in brokenness and humility that drove her to the throne of grace. When she was was destitute, when she was hurting so bad, where did she go? She went to the temple. She went to the Lord. She laid it out before the Lord, and we're going to look at that prayer in just a few minutes. It's seen in her confidence in God in verse 18, it says, The woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She laid her petition before God. She left it there. She trusted him. And she put on her makeup, I guess, and got up and walked away with faith that God had heard her, her request, her response. Hannah's faith... 
resulted in commitment. It resulted in humility. It resulted in confidence right in, in the face of, of great affliction. And one other thing we can glean from this, I think, in Hannah's faith, now, faith is, is God's method of operation. Faith is the contact that we have with God when we need him. It's the expression of our heart to him. There's a quote there on the top of the second page. It says, when people are without strength, without resources, without hope, human hope, without human gimmicks, then he, God, loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. You know, it appears that Hannah was pretty well at the end of her rope by this point. You know, she had humbled herself before the Lord. She had expressed to the Lord what she felt God wanted her to do in giving this child back to him. And now she was ready to to lay it before the Lord and allow him to do the work. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. God wants us to turn in faith Maybe we're blaming God for a circumstance in our life. Hannah could have blamed God because of her barrenness. But she didn't. She trusted him. She knew that if, in fact, he was withholding a child, it was only because he knew better. Let's look at number six, the vow of Hannah. I tell you what, you people just don't listen fast enough. That's my biggest trouble. Just don't listen. Chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. Again, I know we're repeating, but this is what we need to do, I think. We're looking at Hannah's prayer and vow now that comes out of this faith that she has. Then Hannah rose from eating and drinking in Shiloh. And Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She greatly, she greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. And here's the main verse we want to see. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your, hand, of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor will never come on his head. This is her prayer to the Lord. I think we can see a number of things from it. Hannah's faith expressed in her prayer was not make-believe. This is so, so important. It was confidence, her prayer, was confidence based on the knowledge of who God is and what he had done. 
she's she's not just expression of wish. She's she's asking him for what she believes God wants to give her, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But her the basis of her prayer is who God is, what He has promised, and what she believes He wants to do. First John five speaks to this. Well, where is it? First John five fourteen and fifteen. Where does his confidence in prayer come from? He says, This is the confidence which we have before him. Where does that confidence come from? If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked from him. Confidence comes from asking according to his will. I think that's what Hannah's prayer expresses. Hannah knew from experience what it was to walk with the Lord. Hannah knew from experience that what, obviously at that point she couldn't know from experience what the God was in fact going to give her a child. But she knew that she was expressing the desire of her heart. And she knew that unless God ruled otherwise, that this is normally his will for a family. But it was based on who she knew God to be. Let's look at the elements of of her prayer. Let's break that prayer down in verse 11. First thing, she acknowledged his majesty. She called him the Lord of hosts. Some, some translations use almighty. The Lord almighty. You know, she addressed him as the God who was fully in control of everything that ever existed, ever was. He was a God who, who could do anything he wanted to do. You know, the, what does the R.C. Sproul say? You know, in the universe there's not one maverick molecule. Every molecule in the entire universe is under God's control. This was a God she was praying to. She acknowledged his majesty. She acknowledged her position before him. She said, and do not forget your maidservant. You've got people today people who claim to be believers today that say you're supposed to take hold of the word of God and you're supposed to command God to do things. That's faith. No, I don't think so. You know, true faith is knowing who God is, what he can do, what he's promised to do, and seeing ourselves in light of that and responding in light. listening to R.C. You know, uh, Mahaney's CD this week on humility, you know. And he said, true humility 
um, is, is to take God for who he is or to see God as he is, as, as all-powerful, almighty. I should have written it down. I didn't. I'm sorry. Sorry, Mr. McCain. Um, to see God as he truly is and to see ourselves in light of who God truly is. That's humility. Humility is not just putting yourself down. Humility is realizing who we are in light of God, in light of God, who God is, and living in the good of that. So she acknowledged his majesty. She acknowledged her position before him. But then she also acknowledged her desire. Okay. It says, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, okay, and give me a son. She laid her desires before him. You know, Scripture says that the Lord gives us the desires of our heart, which doesn't mean that if I desire a Corvette, he's going to give it to me, but it means that he's going to work in my life to where if I'm walking in the Spirit, the desires that I have are going to be his. He's going to have put them there. This longing for a child from, from Han, on Hannah's part was, was God's working in her life. Now, how he provided that was up to the Lord through a natural birth, through a, an adoption, through taking children or ministering to children that are not your own. All of these things, God gave her a desire. She acknowledged her desire and then she acknowledged her responsibility. She said, I'll give him to the Lord. See, she wasn't looking. She was looking f to glorify the Lord through the Son. She was wanting God to be able to use him to bring glory to him himself. In making her vow, her heart is saying, all that matters is that, is that he will belong to Yahweh, to God. If you will, if you will remember, then I will give. And that's not Hannah bargaining with, Lord, with the Lord. Okay? That's Hannah, I believe, praying out what she believes at this point is God's will for herself and for her son. If you will give, if you will remember, then I will give him back to you. The conditions of the vow were that he was to be a Nazarite all the days of his life. Pick that up in verse 11. Uh, it says that, uh, well, actually, yeah, verse 11 at the end. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor will never come upon his head. And that's an indication of, of a Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow was a a dual vow in a way. It was a separation. It was a separation from the world, but it was a separation to God. She said, he will be yours. And this, I think, this was, this was so new to me. The motivation for that vow was the glory of God and the good of his people, especially in the light of the days in light of the days when the judges rule. 
And why would a woman want a child so desperately get that child and immediately be willing to give him back to the Lord? I think that we have to see the condition of things in Israel at that time. For 200 years, a nation had gone through turmoil after turmoil, judge after judge, wicked person after wicked person. And I believe that Hannah's heart was, was tied up in that. I believe that for God's glory, she wanted to give birth to a son that would lead God's people and would, would, um, would honor God. I really believe that. You know? And so I think this was part of, her, part of her motivation. And we see that God did exactly that. You know? um, Samuel was the, was the last judge in the nation of Israel. From there, they went into the kingship, you know. And um, so I believe that that was part of the motivation of that. We're going to stop there because that's our, our time is up. And next week, we'll talk some about how incompetent Eli was. And um, now this is such a beautiful, beautiful story of, of, a, of a family giving themselves to the Lord, acknowledging what God wanted to do in their lives, and, um, and submitting everything they had to the Lord. It's great. Okay. Allison, it's good to see you back, lady. School going okay? Good. Mama's cooking better than the stuff up there at school? You better say yes. <laughs> good to have you back. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us. How awesome it is, Lord, to see you ruling and overruling in the lives of, of your people. Lord, so often we don't deserve it. <laughs> well, we never deserve it. But you overrule our mistakes. You overrule our weaknesses, our blunders. And God, you keep us on track to complete. Your word tells us that in the end, you will have accomplished every single thing that you want to do in our lives. Oh, that's an awesome promise. And so, God, I just pray that we'll commit ourselves to, to being all that you want us to be in that journey that you have ahead of us. Thank you for the, um, the Elkanahs, Lord. Thank you for the Ruths. Thank you for the, for the Davids. Thank you for the men and women of God, the Hannahs, that we can look back to and we can see with confidence how faithful you are and we can commit our all to that. God, I pray that you build up our, our knowledge, our understanding, not just for the sake of knowledge, Lord, but so that it will be the foundation and the groundwork for, for a faith that will be strong and will be um, a strong commitment to you. We praise you now for your goodness to us. Thank you for this time to be together. And go with us now into the worship service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.